For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. All right, everybody, welcome in once again to the Believe in Patriots podcast right here on the Believe Podcast Network. Patriots wrap up the regular season 7-9 and nine after a 28-14 win over the Jets. If it was the swan song for Cam and Foxborough, he played well. Three touchdown passes and a touchdown reception. They end the year perfectly average, practically 7-9. and nine. They'll pick 15th in the upcoming draft, and plenty of time to get into that as we go. As always, I'm Brady Farkas. You can follow me on Twitter at WDEV Radio Brady. You can follow Doug Flutie, our former Patriots quarterback, former Heisman winner. Well, I guess you're always a Heisman winner. CFL Hall of Famer, Doug Flutie on Twitter and Instagram, at Doug Flutie. The podcast is brought to you by the good folks at BetOnline, betonline.ag, the only place to get all your NFL wagering done here. Playoff time, we got three games on Saturday, three games on Sunday. Bet them, coaching props, over-under totals, point spreads. Just do it responsibly, everybody. BetOnline.ag is the spot to do that. And then college hoops, NBA. We got NHL starting as we tape this in a week and a half. So, uh, And then soon enough, it'll be time for baseball futures, and they'll be right back at it with football season again. So BetOnline.ag. Aaron, to the podcast. What you're about to hear is a presentation of the Believe in Patriots podcast on the Believe Podcast Network. All the news, opinions, and insights on your six-time Super Bowl champion, New England Patriots. Now it's your host, me, Brady Farkas, and Heisman Trophy winner, CFL Hall of Famer, and former Patriots quarterback, Doug Flutie. All right, everybody, welcome in once again to the Believe in Patriots podcast. I'm Brady Farkas. Aaron Wells is our producer. He presses all the buttons behind the scenes and does a great job. And now we welcome in our quarterback, Heisman Trophy winner, former Pats quarterback, Doug Flutie. Doug, the regular season is over, at least for the Pats. How are you, my friend? I'm doing good, thanks. Doing good. It's a little depressing that the season's over and the regular season, but exciting going into the playoffs and watch the playoff runs, but without the Patriots. So we don't get to get fired up about our teams. I don't want to be too wishy-washy on the whole thing because I got a lot of stuff that I think is negative about the season for the Pats, but the fact that we are even here is a minor miracle. I don't know that the NFL did everything right as far as COVID, or that they handled things right or whatever, but the fact we got through all 256 regular season games, it did not look like that was going to be the case for a long time. So I am just happy that we have football to bitch about. Yeah, they, they got the whole season in. There were teams that had to postpone games a few days and all those situations. Teams that played with a running back at quarterback. Teams that had, had no actual running backs on their roster playing that day. Things like yeah. that. But uh, they made it through. They figured a way to do it. And uh, hats off to them. And thanks to all the players that sacrificed a lot of things at home as well in order to make it happen. You know, it, it's interesting you say that because we're taping this on Monday night, and I won't go way too deep into this because you probably haven't seen it yet, but it just happened a few minutes ago. Joe Judge, the Giants coach, just spoke uh, to the media, and he was asked about the Eagles thing. We'll get to the tanking stuff momentarily. But he said something I never thought of. He said, we had a lot of players 
opt in to this season. We talked a lot about guys that opted out and guys that weren't going to be playing. And he said, we had a lot of guys that opted in guys that, you know, didn't have Thanksgiving and didn't have Christmas and skipped their wife's birthdays and families that opted in into these really weird circumstances. Um, I think that's a great way of looking at it. A lot of people opted into this season to make it happen. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I've said it from my perspective, there, there would have been no choice on my part. I would have loved to just play. I love to play. Yeah. But, you know, you looked at the big picture when the decisions were being made. COVID was such uh, a variable, under, misunderstood, not sure what, how dangerous it was going to be. Um, and these guys opted to play. They opted to say, hey, this is important to me. I want to play. Now, these are the sacrifices I'm going to have to make throughout the year and put this stuff to the side. And they went forward with it and did it. And, you know, it shows their love of the game. I think something that Cam showed this past weekend was his love of the game and yeah. love playing and being on the field. Um, and I think that came across with a lot of players. As we, as, as the Believe in Patriots podcast kind of transitions into the offseason, we're, we're kind of doing some reworking on some stuff as far as segments and all that. So kind of like we did last time, I just have a bunch of things I want to run down. You know, we usually do the fun segments, but I just want to run down some things here with Doug. And we will get to the pats and kind of everything and tanking. But I want to start with this, Doug. As we tape this, we're 24 hours away from the Heisman Trophy being awarded. Mm. You won a Heisman Trophy. And this year, Devontae Smith of Bama, Mac Jones of Alabama, Trevor Lawrence, and Kyle Trask, the QB out of Florida. They are the finalists. What is you have to do Heisman Week? Well, Heisman Week is usually a blast. Uh, we go in uh, beginning of the weekend. Uh, the announcement's Saturday night, so we're in by Thursday. Uh, there's some luncheons and, and charity-type events, luncheons, dinners. My favorite night of the week was always Sunday night. Saturday night, we're at the uh, the TV show and the announcement and the hour-long presentation, and there's a big reception before that. Uh, the first thing you do as Heisman winners, we get there, we sign like 500 footballs and a bunch of mm. stuff that you know, for the, uh, the charities that they all have. So that's a little yeah. tedious. But Saturday night, Saturday night's the announcement. Sunday night was always down at Battery Park, running out this beautiful room, view of the Statue of Liberty, and um, it was just Heisman winners and their families. And then the current winner. And they had a band there playing it. Everybody just, it was like casual dancing, dinner, socializing. And that was my favorite night because we all just hung out. And throughout the weekend, we usually leave uh, Monday nights, the big, the big dinner, uh, big formal event. And uh, we all would leave Tuesday morning. But it, it just, there was a hospitality room in the uh, hotel where we all would gather every night at the end of the night and sit and guys are drinking or watching games. And the storytelling is amazing all the way from Jay Burwanger up to uh, Pete Dawkins to Joe Bellino to Hop Cassidy, you name it. You know, it was just amazing to sit. I wish over the years we would just record these. Now you'd have to edit a lot of conversations. <laughs> But the, the, the material that came out, the stories that come out of guys that were and how they were notified and, and the old players would talk about the train rides to games and the, just everything. And uh, that, that is the fraternity of the Heisman Trophy, that room and those stories and everybody hanging out together. 
is it a tight knit group of Heisman winners? I mean, I, you know, I guess I just had this perception that you might be tight with the quarterbacks, so the people that played in your era. But do you go out of your way to get to know everybody? The guy who won it in in '62 uh, and the guy who won it in 2002. Yeah, absolutely. No, there's no doubt that it's a fraternity, a family. Uh, you care about each other. We see each other every year. Uh, along those lines, you know, as guys pass, it's very depressing every year. Uh, to be there. And there's the seat that Joe Bellino used to sit in. There's the seat that, you know, Paul Horning recently passing away. Um, you want to see if how guys care about each other. Uh, Earl Campbell uh, really beat up and, and tough hips and he's in a wheelchair and uh, at the events and guys would lift them and get him up on the stage for the announcement, you know, up until a few years ago, same with Paul Horning in his last few years. Uh, Everybody knows each other's family. Everybody told, you know, not, not top to bottom, but, you know, groups that you would not believe. Mike Rozier, I always talk about Mike Rozier because Mike was 83 and I was 84. And um, the year Mike won it, I finished third. So I hung out with Mike a little there. But Steve Young and I, Steve was number two that year. We played basketball all weekend. And we just, we knew Mike was going to win. So we were just there having fun <laughs> messing around. And, um, so Rozier and I are kind of joined at the hip a little bit because he sits next to me at the dinner every year because we're consecutive years. And Mike's a little bit of a partier, likes to drink and have his fun. He, he needles all the speakers to hurry up, clock's running, <laughs> sit down, shut up, let's go, let's get this over with so I can go hang out in the hospitality suite. <laughs> and it was always my job over the years to keep an eye on Mike. And I, you know, who's in charge of Mike? I got him. You know, he's, <laughs> it's, it's just, we got a great group of guys. How do you, look, there are some people who the Heisman Trophy is that was the highest honor they ever got in football. It didn't really translate to the NFL. How do you go from being a guy? How do you go? How did you go about making sure that that wasn't your high water mark? Was there pressure that came with being the Heisman Trophy winner? You weren't the number one pick overall, like some of these Heisman Trophy winners are, but was there pressure in being the Heisman winner? I think there is. And, but that's stuff you put on yourself and, and others, uh, because of the top, it's easy for others to try to put the pressure on you because you're the Heisman winner. Um, mm. I was always very self-motivated and just always, you know, I never had a secure position anywhere except for maybe in the CFL. So I was always grinding and, and, and put, but no, there, that's very true that the expectation is extremely high and you're supposed to walk in and be the superstar year one in the NFL and that's not always going to happen. There were guys that have struggled over the years and, and guys that are great in college football. It doesn't always translate to pro football because yeah. of, for whatever reason, the nature of the game, the wide hash marks in college allow you to do a lot of, uh, a lot of other things to the wide side of the field, things into the short side, option football, the zone read game, all that. Now the NFL has adapted to that and taken these phenomenal athletes and found a way for them to incorporate into the NFL game. And it's, it's just exploded offensively now in the NFL because of it. Uh, so maybe there were guys that back then could have done well in the NFL if they'd been a little more open-minded about offenses, because a lot of times you can, you can be great in college football being a sheer athlete. You, only, only Michael Vick has done it in the NFL being athletic and Lamar Jackson yeah. maybe. Uh, but Lamar's starting to throw the ball pretty darn good, too. So, um, you know, it's very difficult to just run around and say, I'm going to make plays being an athlete. So that's why that's why some of the Heisman winners in college haven't carried over to, to NFL. 
We have so much to get to. We try to keep this because it's easier on post-production under an hour. So I'm going to try to go fly through some things, but still get to all the in-depth stuff we want to get to. Um, I want to start before we get into the past with the quote tanking discussion from what is last night's Eagles and Washington football team game. I know Doug's thoughts on tanking overall. Dan Orlovsky is a former NFL quarterback, works at ESPN. Doug, I want you to hear what he said about the Eagles pulling Jalen Hurts, putting in Nate Sudfeld, et cetera. So, Aaron, let's hear what Orlovsky said. Last night was a mockery. It was an absolute mockery. We hear the term tanking in sports all the time. And we as ex-players will often say, listen, front offices, they will tank. Yes, because it's better for their organization long term. Coaches and players just don't. You just don't see it. They're not wired that way. Last night was the first time that I felt I saw it. A coach obviously tanking. All right, Doug, do you feel as strongly about that as Orlovsky does? Was last night a mockery to you? Uh, I, I may not go as far as saying a mockery, but yes, I feel the same way. I, I feel very strong about it, very strongly about it. Um, you go into a game, you go in to win. That's the bottom line. You owe it to, number one, you're under contract, you're getting paid, you play your butt off. So the players that are stepping on the field are going to play as hard as they can play. The coaches do the same. The coaches are under contract and being paid to win football games. The front office can dictate to a coach and say, hey, I want to see this young player play. I need We need to find out about this young player, that young player. I, you might sit a guy – like it would have been perfectly understandable for me to sit Cam Newton for the last game. Yes. And let's see what Stidham can do. Get him in there to see him have a whole game to play football. Uh, we've got to find out about a player. And in that in that process, you may lose a game that you, you could have won, but you're finding something out about your team, about your players, and the guys on the field are still playing to win, and you're still coaching to win. That's a little different. This was – we might win this game. Wait a minute. Uh, you know, we, we can move up in the draft if we do this. And now uh, let's let's put this kid in and let him let him uh, throw the game for us. Is what it came across as. Um, but I, I unless they needed to find something out about the player, I, I think it was total tanking. And it, it just as a player, I, I just can't imagine it. So they obviously they didn't need to find anything about Sudfeld. He's been there for a bunch of years. I interviewed him with the Super Bowl when the Pats lost to the Eagles. He was the backup quarterback then. They know what they need to know about Sudfeld. I will say this, and I think you and I have similar, albeit differing views on this. And what I mean is, I think last night was horrible, but I don't think it was horrible for the NFL. I think it was horrible for the Philadelphia Eagles. Okay, If I'm Jalen Hurts, and there's a chance that I am shaken by what happened, or I now distrust my head coach, that is a problem. We already know that Doug Peterson has fractured his relationship with Carson Wentz, possibly beyond repair. Is there now a fracture with Jalen Hurts? That would be a problem. If I am in the locker room of the, of the Philadelphia Eagles, and I now don't trust the organization, or I now don't trust my head coach, I think that is a problem. I think last night was awful for the Eagles, but when people say it was an embarrassment to the NFL, I will not go that far. I'll give that to you. I agree. I agree that it's just more reflection on that individual team. Um, and, you know, what's going to happen is next year after the draft is over and the, the, the season gets ready to start, this will be forgotten. Or the player drafted, is he known as Tank? 
You know, is, is the, <laughs> <laughs> you know, do you, is this guy drafted and getting labeled because you know what? We should have been a couple of rounds later or, or you know, a few picks down the road. And so you know, he'll get a nickname, a tank to him if, if it carries over. I, I really, I don't like it. I don't like anything about it. I, I, a lot of gamblers uh, that are guys that are betting on games and all, I, I hear them talk about, they feel like, you know, teams tanking this or that they intentionally, they don't know. They don't know the score. They don't know the situation. They, they're out there playing their tail off. He missed the layup into the end of the game or he, he ran out of bounds at the one yard line. Um, that happens. And the you know, player, let me, oh, God, I'm sorry. It's just, it's, it's not the player looking at the point spread, is what I'm saying. Let me ask you this, though. And, and the re- people said all over social media last night, what about the competitive integrity of the game? What about the sanctity of competition? And I think to myself, every year we have a conversation about some playoff team. Should they throw week 17 so that they can get a different playoff matchup? Every year we talk about that. Should a team actively try to lose so they can get a more favorable playoff matchup? The the Kansas City Chiefs yesterday did not play Patrick Mahomes. That affected competitive integrity of the NFL and altered draft orders, etc. The Pittsburgh Steelers did not play Ben Roethlisberger. And the Cleveland Browns got into the playoffs possibly because they were able to beat the Steelers without Big Ben. That Mm -hmm. altered the playoffs and that alters the competitive integrity of the league. It's different situations, but don't we see manipulation of competition all the time in the NFL? In those two instances, I don't think it's manipulating the system. I think it's doing what's best for you towards the playoffs. And I, Ben's a veteran guy. I'm resting him the last week. I'm give, I want him healthy next week. I want him healthy for his first playoff game. It's, and, you know, uh, when I was playing with Buffalo, they sat me the last week. Uh, I, I tweaked my knee a little bit. I was fine. I could have played. They sat me uh, to rest and have two weeks off, you know, two weeks of rest to play that playoff game. Um, the second, well, the second year was a whole different story. But, <laughs> you know, you do that. You take some better. Now, I can see take veteran guys and sit them only because you want to gear towards that playoff game. I'm going to play my starting quarterback the first half, but I don't want him getting banged up. I'm resting him. When you're resting guys towards the, the bigger picture, that's fine. It's not because you want to throw that game and have a different team get into the playoffs or have a different seeding. I, I firmly believe that. See, I think I, I disagree with you there. I, th- I, I don't know that teams actively do it. I will have to say that. But I do feel like there are coaches that look at potential matchups and say, hey, I'd rather play in the NFC. It did not happen this way. But I could understand a scenario where Seattle says, hey, we didn't. We don't want to get the two seed like we could have yesterday. Mm-hmm. We want the three because the three gives us the Rams without Jared Goff, and that is a benefit to us. So well, I can see things like that happening. I, you know, I can't rule it out, and uh, especially something that like that where there's an injury to the starting quarterback. Um, all I can go back to is my last year in New England in 05. Um, last, last game of the season was meaningless to us in the playoff spots. Um, coach wanted to find out and get Matt Castle some work and Matt hadn't started a game, hadn't played at all and got him a full game against Miami. And he started it. He played it. He played fairly well, but we lost. We ended up playing Jacksonville instead of Pittsburgh. Uh, I'm not saying, you know, it was for a reason that I, I firmly believe the reasoning is 
Uh, Tom had some nicks and bangs, and you rest Tom, get him 100% for the playoffs, and you let your young kid play and get a good look at him. Well, very, very interesting. So, again, you and I dislike the move. I dislike it for the Eagles reason. I don't think it was awful for the NFL. That's my opinion. Um, I want to move on to the Patriots specifically. They beat the Jets 28-14. They finished 7-9. and Talk to me about the offseason process and the early offseason. And why I'm going there is the Patriots have more than 20 free agents this year. And they have a lot of them are names that we know. James White's a free agent and Cam Newton's a free agent and Jason McCourty's a free agent. Offseason process. What is this like? If you're about to be a free agent, what is it like? When do you start hearing? How does is your agent running everything behind the scenes? What is that like? I was a free agent uh, really only when I came. Well, I guess coming from Buffalo over to San Diego, I was as well. Right away, you're, you're contacting teams. You're finding out needs. Your agent is calling everyone. The more, the more suitors you have, uh, the bigger the price tag winds up being. Um, and that's, that's just the case. That's the way it is. And as a quarterback, um, you know, those are the hot commodities to, to start building a team around and everyone has their different needs, but it's an aggressive thing. Uh, pro bowl week is a big week where everyone's in the same spot together usually. So there's a lot of communications back and forth going on then, but phone calls are starting to be made already. And, um, I, you know, the Patriots are looking at their needs and things are, I, I, I think they've got to find a a quarterback available right away. I love the competitiveness of Cam. I love the way he played this this last game, and I I, I love the way he played all season. He's I think he's just limited, but yeah. they're you know they're going to move on from Cam, and they've got to find a guy that can can pull the trigger and get. As we were talking about last week, and you brought it up, you know you can't sign the wide receivers without a quarterback there already. Do you ever do your own research on situations or does the agent tell you, Hey, this is my job. Let me do it. You relax, you train, you unwind and let me take it. Do you ever get involved on your own? Uh, I, you know, not really. Um, they come back to you and then you, you voice your opinions and say, no, 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 this isn't going to work. I don't want to be here. I don't want to just try to make this work. Try to make that work. That sounds like a great situation. Mm. Um, your agent is going to call every GM, every GM. Mm. And I don't care, you know, this, the team you're with, the teams in your division, the teams on the other side, whoever might need a quarterback, they're going to probably call everyone anyway, because it's a networking thing to begin with. And a lot of times decisions happen because, there's a relationship between the agent and that particular GM. They trust each other. Um, there's a trust factor that the coaches have worked with individual players before all that type of thing to get opportunities. You know, you're not talking in those, in those situations, you're not talking about the upper echelon, you know, but you're talking about those middle of the road players. Um, a lot of times relationships can get you in the door and get you that opportunity somewhere else. My year that was a big year was coming out of Buffalo. Um, and I signed with San Diego. Well, my GM in Buffalo became the GM in San Diego. And it, that opportunity arose. And that's that's how that happened for me. You know, I, I don't know that this happens as much in football because there aren't as many, quote, bidding wars in football. But I'm curious because I've heard in baseball this on several accounts. Let me paint you the scenario. Do you think there's ever a situation where a player has to take 
just the biggest offer because it sets the market for the rest of the players. Like, we don't think the Patriots right now are an attractive wide receiver destination. If the Patriots offered a wide receiver five years for $100 million, and the next best offer the guy got was five years and $60 million, does the guy have to go to the Patriots, even though he may not want to, solely because, hey, you got to help all the players out. We need as much money as possible, and you're setting the mark. <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think they, they, they're paying attention to that factor. They're looking at their own situation. Like $100 million over six, you know, It's either a selfish situation, and that usually happens earlier in the career. Yep. You know, that first big contract coming up where you, yeah, it's, it, you know, we talk about the, the lifespan of a, of a NFL career being three and a half years. You make the money when you can. Now you've, you've made your mark. You've been a pro bowler a few years. You've made great money. Now you're becoming a free agent. You might take less money to be in a more advantageous situation to have a run at a Super Bowl. I haven't won yet. I haven't been a part of a Super Bowl team yet. If I take a pay cut within my own franchise, with my own team, we might be able to sign another wide receiver and an extra DB that, that could help us get to where we want to get. And that's, that's the situation. You know, we saw Tom a few handful of times take not below market, market money, but not what he probably could have held out for to try to help the offense, to get more weapons, to get a better defense, whatever it might be, those end, those decisions run into your mind after you've made your mark, after you've made your money. You've got that short window to make money, and unfortunately, you're going to probably go go for the money, early, especially early in your career. Well, Aaron says a good point. He says, our producer says, uh, I wonder what the NFL Players Association would think about a guy not getting all he could. And, and it's what I was going for because I know in, in baseball, I was told this by a very reputable baseball insider. Back in 2009, CC Sabathia signed with the Yankees. I think it was like seven years, $161 million. He wanted to play for the, for the Angels because he was from California, but they only offered him like $120 million. And the Players Association said, you better take the $161 million offer because that helps all of us. Yeah, they'll tell them that, but you know what? What are the repercussions? I'm I'm going to go play where I want to play. Um, I I just I I don't want that pressure from from the PA, and I I think you know the only the only situation I can even come close to comparing that to for me was I had about a million and a half a year sitting on the table, guaranteed money in a four year deal in Toronto, and I took two hundred fifty thousand dollars to come to Buffalo. Hmm. And play in Buffalo, you know, but um, it was, uh, you know, that's apples and oranges. Um, I I can't imagine. I I think you want to play where you want to play. You know, if, if what if you know this is my home area? I came back to New England to play at the end of my yeah. career. You know, I probably I could have I could have signed with the Giants before that. Instead, hmm. I, I decided I, I really wanted to be. I probably would end up with the same thing, which was that at the time decent money but it was the minimum for i was a 11 year vet at that time so it probably would have been comparable but i was i kept holding out because i wanted to be in new england and uh finally the new england offer came cam said earlier today that his biggest regret about this season is not having more time in the system i think he and he, he humbly acknowledged maybe i gave myself too much credit that I could just step in. I played in the league for a long time. I could just step in and learn everything quick. And he says that he was wrong in assuming that. So if he signs early this year, let's just say he signs in March. Last year he signed in July. This year he signs in March. How much more 
of an advantage would he have going into next season, whether it's in New England or anybody else? How big a deal are those four months? Well, if, as long as it's a normal offseason, which right now, who knows? Uh, if yeah. it's a normal offseason, yes, it's a much bigger advantage. Uh, you're, you're getting film time with your coaches, sitting down, talking through things on a board, getting out on the field and doing walkthroughs and, and throwing routes with your receivers, hanging out with your new receivers and offensive linemen during a, you know, on a Monday night, whatever it is, uh, getting to know each other, the, the camaraderie that builds, and then the, the X and O end of it, the, the repetition, repetition, repetition. I say one, one thing about Tom, and I guess he proves me wrong by going to Tampa and having the year he had, but I was so jealous of Tom staying in one, one team and one system his entire career to be able to just continually build on this system and things be so second nature, that that's a great advantage. And, and that's where you have to get to. And I think that's why we see rookie quarterbacks coming into the NFL and actually be able to win early on because they have these off seasons where the coaches have them all off season long. And uh, they're, they're working on things from the, from the very beginning and have this long off season of mini camps and OTAs and whatever summer school, whatever you want to call it. It's basically practicing every day. You were a different breed, and over the four months or so we've done this podcast, you've shown me you were a different breed. So clearly you were okay with it. Um, I'm sure you saw other guys in your career that weren't. Cam talked about, they asked him today, would you be open to being a backup? And he said, right now, I do not want to be a backup. I believe that I am still one of the 32 best quarterbacks in the NFL, and um, I think he thinks – we had a lot of things working against us this year because of COVID, et cetera. With a normal offseason, I can be really good again, or I can at least be a starter again. Um, I don't I don't even know how to ask the question, but what's it like for a player who has to come to terms with what he is or what he isn't anymore? Yeah, I um that's a hard one for Cam. I think Cam can still be successful. I mean, seven they won they won seven ball games this year, and there were a couple others very close that they could have pulled out, right? Yeah. Um, that that wins a division over in the NFC. Yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> but um, you know, Cam's limited right now. The way he, I I don't know. Maybe maybe he's throwing the ball like this for a while. But um, I think he'd be a great backup quarterback because he's a change of pace. He's in something different. If you have a guy that say we have a, a guy similar to Tom, that's a balls out of his hand relatively quickly. It's the efficient pass again, bang, bang, bang. They're worried about coverage. They're not worried about a running quarterback. They're, they can play what we call too deep man under, which is a very difficult coverage to throw the ball against. You never play that against a running quarterback because everybody gets their back turned. The quarterback steps out of the pocket, 20, 30 yard runs all the time. So when you have a, different tweak or different twists as the backup quarterback, it can cause a lot of issues for, for defense that has a game plan for him. So Cam as a backup would be a, a great weapon. I really believe that. Um, is he still a starter? Is he still one of the best 32? I think he could do a better job than some of the guys that started around the league this year. Yeah. Um, you know, but some of those guys are early round draft choices, younger kids that are going to get their chance to go out there and fail for a while. How do you mentally, though, get around that? Like Cam Newton, MVP of the league. I went to a Super Bowl. I made $100 million in contract. I've got endorsements. I'm on commercials. I'm rated a 95 in video games. Like 
I've seen myself like this. I yeah. don't want to be a backup. And even you, I understand it was earlier in your career, but like, hey, man, I'm Doug Flutie. I just won the damn Heisman trophy, trophy. And now and now I'm, you know, late round draft pick for the, you know, on the bench for the Bears. Like, how does that, how do you come to terms with that? You just keep, you know, you never lose your own confidence. That's the number one thing. You, the, the one thing about the NFL is it can beat you down mentally. So yeah. internally, you still think you're the best on the field. You still believe that. I felt like all I got to do is get on the field and, and it'll happen. Just give me my chance. Let me get on the field. Let me. And so I prepared as a starter. You were always ready. All the guys that are backups in the NFL right now believe they could start. They, there's otherwise they wouldn't be in the NFL. They wouldn't be in a position to have success in college and be where they are because they all have the capability of doing it. Um, some guys are just so much more talented and have, have the experience and have, you know, confidence breeds, you know, success breeds confidence as they go. So the, the tough part is to stay mentally sharp. You keep your mouth shut. When you become that back, I'm not saying Cam has yet. But when you become the backup, the number one thing is you got to be a team player, say the right things, do the right things, prepare your ass off, and be ready when that moment comes. And when you step on the field, don't let them take you off the field. And that's your that's your mental approach. And and if you believe you're still a starter, um, and you happen to be in that position, you keep that mentality, and you're you're ready when the opportunity comes. It's a tough pill to swallow. You go home and gripe and complain. You you. You see other teams playing and there are guys that are throwing three interceptions a week and scoring seven points a week. And you know you could be starting for that or you feel you could be starting here, starting there, but you're in your situation. So I I still want to know what's going on with, with Cam's shoulder because I, I believe in Cam as far as his competitiveness and everything else. When you are – the resentful, but they asked him a lot about, we always just assume the backup quarterback who's a veteran is going to be a mentor. He's going to mentor the young guy. He's going to mentor the new guy. You were able to do it. I know you did it for Drew Brees, but when you are the resentful backup who wants to be playing, who's been pushed into this role, how do you handle as a team? Cam is a great teammate, but I think Cam wants to be a great teammate who's starting. I don't know that Cam oh, wants to no hold doubt. somebody's hand. It's very difficult, I, it, but I mean – you look at uh, Fitzpatrick this year. Yeah, right. He's rolling along. He's got a team that's he's playing his tail off, and all of a sudden, you know what? It's time we got to play the young guy. Why? Because he's got a big contract. He's a young guy. He's first round draft choice, and we got to play him, huh? And then, okay, I got to come off the bench and win. He's that is that is, and you saw the reaction of Tua when when Fitzpatrick played well. There's a relationship yep. that gets built from being in that room together every weekend, week out day in and day out. And that part of it's all right. The really, you have no resentment towards the other guy. That's the, there's no resentment towards the other guy. It's towards the decision-making process. So you can still be a good team player. You really can. And that, that part's not, that part's not tough. It's not tough to be close with the other guy and help the other guy, because as long as we're winning and we're in a position to make the playoffs, my moment's going to come. I'm, there's going to be a time where I got to come off Ryan Fitzpatrick. I got to come off the bench and win a game, or it might be in a playoff. It, it might be in a Super Bowl, but it's going to take both of us to get there. And that's the attitude you have to take. I think it's truly, I, I think that's a special quality. And 
Maybe it's a pro athlete thing. Maybe it's just a good guy thing. But I do not think I could look at the other guy and not be resentful. And he's never he's never said it. But I think it took I think it took Drew Bledsoe years to get over what happened to him in New England. Now I don't know that you're right that he ever hated Tom Brady, but right. I, I firmly believe he hated his situation in New England for a long time. Oh, the situation, yes. I mean, I was. I was playing in Buffalo, and, and a lot is made of uh, Rob Johnson and myself in Buffalo. Um, I really had nothing against Rob at all. I thought I was a better quarterback deep down. I thought we could win with me on the field. And it was frustrating when we were struggling and I wasn't on the field. That's, you know, that was inside. Now, in the meeting room, we're still talking about coverage. We're still talking plays. I don't have any resentment towards Rob. I just I'm waiting for my opportunity to get on the field and play. And it's it's not towards the individual. It's towards the situation. All right. Let's move on more uh, Patriot specific stuff as a team. I asked this question on my radio show a month ago. The Patriots were six and six. I asked, is the Patriots season as it sits a success or is it a failure? And at that time, I said it was a success at six and six playing meaningful football games. I thought the season could only be a success. Finishing up at seven and nine, I'm changing my answer. I'm saying the season was a failure. There were successful parts of the season. Jacoby Myers was great, I thought. Gunnar Olszewski led the league somehow in mm. punt return yard average. Like he was very, very good. JC Jackson was second in the league in interceptions with nine. There were good things that happened with this team. But Doug, I am somebody who likes planning. I like knowing things. I asked my girlfriend on Monday what we're doing the following weekend. Like, I need to know things, and I don't feel the Patriots have a direction that we know, and that bothers me. And if we don't have a direction and I'm not aware of it, it's got to be a failure at this point. <laughs> yeah, I, I think they, they had high expectations. Uh, not, not necessarily winning the Super Bowl, but, but compete for the division, maybe be a wildcard team and be competitive. Um, and there were times where, especially offensively, they were not competitive. Um, that Cam could be the guy. I mean, we all saw these, these games where Cam's running ability and moving the football, Harris in the backfield. Um, the passing game was disappointed overall, but you know, the time of possession in those types of games and winning football games, it, it looked hopeful at times. Now you're sitting in a situation and, and you don't know that he's the guy and you don't know who the guy is going to be. And do we have the talent at receiver? Do we have the talent at tight end? Are we in a position to just make a couple of moves and be competitive? They don't, I don't think they have those answers yet. I think they're going to, and it starts with the trigger guy. It starts with the quarterback position, who and what, what type of offense they want to be. I don't think, and I don't know if Josh McDaniels will be, be back next year, you know, if he gets a head job possibility, some are opening up already. And I, uh, you, you don't, I don't think he wants to be a team that runs the ball with the quarterback 15 times a game and, yeah. you know, and, and is a ball control offense. I think you want to be a let it fly, move it around, uh, mix in the run and it score 35, 40 points a game. I have some Patriots rapid fire ish questions. They're not one word answers, but they're not things I want to go 20 minutes on. Um, how much can we learn from the final game of a regular season that it, where the game is meaningless? It's not meaningless to the players, but how much can we really take away? Sony Michelle looked really good yesterday, and he's looked really good for a couple of weeks now. And 
I was ready to cut him a month ago. And now all of a sudden, six yards of carry. But is that he hey, a couple of balls? <laughs> yeah, he catches the ball too. He scored a, a you know a, a receiving touchdown. Is that just end of the year flukiness, or is that something I could really extrapolate and build on? I think it shows character. I think in a meaningless game, the character shows itself. You know, what guys are out there playing their heart out and what guys are like looking at the clock saying, I, I got my bags packed, I want to go home. And I think that was very significant when you looked at Cam and, and a guy like Sonny Michelle, who finally gets an opportunity to show himself after Harris's injuries. Uh, yeah. he, he got a chance to, to really get some playing time in the last couple of weeks and, and redeem himself, hopefully. I think it, it, it shows character. And I'm sure that was a point of emphasis throughout the week from Bill Belichick to his team. You know, they're all on film. They're all being evaluated. Does winning the last game of a season in which you don't make the playoffs, does that give you what fans call positive momentum into the offseason? Do you walk out of that game if you're a Patriot and say, hey, we won our last one. We feel good going to the offseason. Or it's like, hey, we didn't win, so it doesn't matter. Um, no, there's always a good feeling about winning a football game. I mean, you saw a smile on Cam's face throughout the fourth yeah. quarter when things were going well, a couple of nice hugs and embraces from guys to guys. And, um, that is a bonding moment for the guys on that team. And it's also could be a farewell for a lot of them. So it's, it becomes a brand new team next year. So it's a start fresh situation there, but at least for the players themselves, it was something to feel good about going into the offseason. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything towards next season. It's just a feel-good moment for the guys to have amongst themselves. I don't know that Cam's going to be back. There's a possibility that he will be. You mentioned McDaniels. If McDaniels leaves and Cam has a second coordinator in two years in New England, how big a deal is coordinator turnover? We talk about how long it took Cam to get comfortable in this offense. If you're learning another offense, even if they're similar to some degree, how hard is that on a QB? Very difficult. Very difficult. Very frustrating. Um, I think what Bill, I, as far as I know, I when Bill, when when Josh McDaniel le left the first time, they kept yep. the same offense. So that I think would be a quest for Bill is if he can try to find a situation where he could keep the same offense. If not, for, for Cam, it'll be a very frustrating offseason again and learning a third language and, and trying to get started. That, you know, like I was just talking about being jealous of Tom having the same system for so many years, that is an, a distinct advantage to be able to have repetition within the same offense, the same terminology year after year. Do you think that Bill Belichick is looking forward to this process? I don't call it rebuilding, but do you think he's a guy who looks forward to molding and being an architect or is he looking at this like i just want to win super bowls and i don't like the process of building anymore or do you think he enjoys that creating i think i think he gets a great rush out of taking players that other people don't think are gonna are very average or whatever and then turn them into all pros or put them in a situation where successful i i always go back to a couple of the super bowls or especially one of them bringing guys in off the streak at the end of the street off the end of the season because of injury and having them start for you in the Super Bowl and perform, being able to plug people into his system, perform and do well. He takes a lot of pride in that. He, he really, really does. And this situation is different because he's never had to do it on the offensive side of the ball, starting with his quarterback. Um, and so I, I think he enjoys that challenge. I think he'd rather have – perennial all pros at every position and be able to walk into next season. But 
he takes a lot of pride in saying, hey, I'm a good football coach. I, I have got I have a system that works. I can plug people into it. Give me quality players and we can win. And that's what he likes to do. Are we at the point? I, I've always been a guy who just kind of naively says defense wins championships, right? Good pitching beats good hitting and, and defense wins championships. Are we at the point now as we think about how the Patriots should be built moving forward where now we have to look at it and say, Good offense is what you need to build because the Dolphins had the number one ranked scoring defense in the NFL and the Bills hung 56 on them yesterday. So maybe it's the rules. It's the speed of the game. It's all favoring the offense. I I think that you need to have a defense that's good enough in the playoffs to win. But by and large, the offense is where the money needs to be spent and where the team needs to be built. Are we at the point now where – Offense now beats defense. I think so. I believe so. With the with the job that they've done with what we call double cadence and getting getting into the right play all the time, being able to make a defense show their hand, the wide receiver screens, the RPO game, the stuff off of you got a run play call and they load the box and all of a sudden last second they they're coming. You hit the wide receiver, and uh, you saw it with Tampa Bay. Antonio Brown's getting eight to twelve yards every time they did it. You know, it's a run call. You you got into the wrong play. You got eight guys in the bank. So smart quarterback play, smart offense. The the nature of the game now. You can't hit the quarterback. They stand in there a lot firmer. Receivers are getting away with pushing off themselves a little bit more. Um, the game is lending itself to open up and be a passing game. You need to be able to throw the football. And good offense wins. You, know, you, you may have to outscore people, and we've seen that in the past. The thing that I, I think that is tough still to reconcile with, because I think you're right, right? Like good offense will be good defense, but good offense doesn't always travel in the playoffs because of weather. I think weather is yeah, such weather. a neutralizing factor. Like if it's snowing in Buffalo, then the Bills can't look like they did yesterday, or do I trust that somebody's good? Like, can the Rams take their offense and go to Green Bay and win on that surface? Those are the answers I don't know. But for the course of a regular season and how your team is built, I think offense is the answer. But bad weather in the playoffs does become a major neutralizer. It really does. And that's where these athletic quarterbacks, um, some of the smaller guys, probably are going to have a little yeah. trouble throwing the ball, but their mobility and their athleticism comes into play in those games. I always thought when I played in Buffalo, when we had nasty weather, I had an advantage because mm -hmm. I wore gloves. My grip on the ball was great. I could throw the ball still up the field, and now my athleticism comes into play. And, and in a snow game, in a snow game, a little guy can run tougher because they don't – defenders can't, like, plant their feet, feet mm -hmm. and explode into you. So I, I ran – because you're afraid to cut sometimes. You know, if you cut, you're going to slip and fall. So you put your shoulder down, and I – I remember a collision I had with Rodney Harrison at the goal line. I had about a 30-yard run down to the one-yard line. And on a normal day, I would have tried to make a, I would have made a little wiggle or something and probably gotten the end zone standing up. But I was afraid to cut because I thought I'd slip on the snow. I put my shoulder down. Rodney kept coming with his shoulder down. He blew me up, and we went flying. And, uh, you know, it didn't hurt because you, you couldn't really push off with his feet. And it was, it was like, hey, I get to play tough for, for a series. But – I think athletic quarterbacks have the advantage in those nasty situations. My last rapid fire ish thing is not so much a question as it is an observation. And I'm not trying to be Mr. Rogers or have a Ted talk here, but 
I think Cam proved uh, to us this year that just being likable goes a long way. Like, if you're a villain, you're easy to root against, right? Mm-hmm. Like, um, Bryce Harper plays the villain in baseball. There's a lot of people that can't stand Bryce Harper and they want to see him fall. Cam, it's very – like, I think if Cam were a jerk, he would have been so buried by the media by about week five. But because he was so likable, I think everybody – including me and maybe you, I think everybody was soft on him because he's so damn nice. You, you rooted for him all year long. And I, I root for him because of how hard he was playing, how hard he was running with the football. And then, you know, the, the media, I, they gave some media award to him. Like, yeah, nice he gave the award. media good guy. The media good guy. And, and you never, you know, from afar, thought cam newton was that kind of guy i i just you know you mm-hmm. see the big the hats and the outfits and all that so i i think that goes a long way and it's just you you be nice to people you do things the right way you say the right things um good for and it's i i can't emphasize how hard it is to do that when you're losing that is a difficult thing to do you know the or you feel like the world hates you when you lose a football game you feel like the entire pan, fan base is pointing the finger at you and hates you and you're and for him to step up every day say the right things be a great teammate work hard step back out on the field and to play week 17 with a smile on his face and and play tough it was fourth quarter up by 14 points he had a third and three he ran off the right side I don't know if it was a naked bootleg or what it was yeah. put his shoulder down and just dove for the first down and went over a guy and you know here's a veteran guy Nothing is on the line. The season's over. You're not going to the playoffs. The game's over, even if he gets tackled. And he's playing hard. So that's the stuff that I remember this season for Cam. I want to end the uh, show for today on this note. Doug, you got some good pub this last week. Uh, the, the This past weekend was the 15-year anniversary of your oh drop goodness. kick in that game against Miami back in the end of 05. You were featured in the Boston Globe, Chris Price, of the Boston Globe is the guy who wrote the story. He talked with you for the story. He came on my radio show today. We talked a little bit about that story and a little bit about you. Um, fun to fun to relive. Really was a cool memory in NFL history. It really for me it was a um, and I thank Bill, uh, Chris Berman's idea. Bill Belichick letting me do it, and uh, it was the last play of my career. And it's kind of one of these bookend moments. I've said this before, where I had the hail mary pass at the end of my college career and uh, the drop kick. And I just, it was a fun moment for me that season. It was really the only thing I ever did on the field and got a smile out of the guys or felt like I was a part of the team. So it was, it was, it's neat to have those kind of moments. I'm looking at a picture of it right now up on the wall Mm -hmm. that uh, the Kraft family uh, made a nice donation towards our foundation when I retired and gave me a picture and a, and a plaque. Uh, It was, it was just a cool moment for me. Uh, Something that I didn't think was that big a deal that that now is living on and becoming an anniversary <laughs> thing, and then to say fifteen years just makes me feel old as dirt. So what are you going to do? You know, uh, one of our very first conversations we talked about that play. I won't ask you to go through the play again because I get it, but I've never seen one since, and it hadn't mm. been done. And I forget the story had it. I forget it was a sixty-four long years, nineteen forty-one. It hadn't been done in sixty-four years. I've never seen it since. So. You drop kick the ball for the extra point. It's still worth one point, though, right? Like that, it's it was still only worth one. Just an extra point. It's the way they used to kick field goals. Field goals and extra points were kicked. 
through a drop kick. The, the kicker catch it, drop it, and pop it through. Um, then at one point they started using holders to hold the ball on the ground, and you know everything was a lot more consistent and stable. And uh, the the only reason to do it, I saw a high school clip on Instagram where, and I still don't know if this counted or not, but he kicked the ball. The field goal was blocked and the ball was in front of the kicker. So it bounced up and he kicked it again off of the ground through the uprights. Hmm. And in the Canadian football league, that would be legal. It would be a field goal. It would still count. It was a drop kick behind the line of scrimmage. I don't know in the NFL if that would still count, but there are very few practical applications of it. We just did it for fun. Is the only bet the only benefit to doing it then, I would think, is you get instead of the holder on the field, you get an extra blocker on the line of scrimmage. Is that truly the only benefit? That's pretty much it. And I've said this though. Guy I, I remember seeing Morstead, the punter from from uh, the Saints, the perennial yeah. pro. I saw him hit an 80 yard drop kick. Oh my god. Okay. Oh. Because these punters in their big leg, what you can do, I mean, I could kick if I kicked field goals probably now like 30, 35 yards, if I drop kick, I could hit it 40 to 45 hmm. because the ball bounces up off the ground and you can catch it on an upswing like a punt. And when I saw him do it, it was like shot out of a missile and it was ridiculous height. Now, I, the only way thing I can picture is maybe end of the half, end of the game, Instead of running some stupid play where you're lateraling all over the place, or you get a free kick opportunity uh, of an 80 yard drop kick or 75 wow. or something where maybe the field goal kicker's out of range. So, uh, again, there is a pra practical application in Canada because you can drop kick beyond the line of scrimmage. You could throw it to a receiver, he's on the run, and drop kick it on the run. So, if you're out of field goal range, you hit a guy that can do it on the fly, you got a chance. That's unbelievable. And I just think, of the uh and you mentioned this in the boston globe story like just the act of bouncing it in front of you and getting it to bounce exactly how you want i mean that had to have taken hours of practice the the drop is the key it's how you drop the ball and on the center of that field in new england was the, a dust bowl it was a mess yeah. it was uh it was a it was a crap shoot that day i was a little concerned about about that but <laughs> i've done it since i was a kid and um, I, when I was younger, when I was playing in Canada, probably in my early mid thirties, early thirties, I, I could drop, I hit a 55 yarder. Uh, we were messing around pregame up in Saskatchewan and Mike Vanderjack and I, uh, the, the kicker from Indianapolis, we used to have yeah. some competitions and uh, I was pretty consistent at it because I did it. I've done it since I was 10 years old messing around. Mike Vanderjack is Peyton Manning called him our idiot kicker. Yeah. Hey, by the way, by, by the way, I think you and I are wearing the exact same shirt. Yes, we I are. Think. I noticed that when you came on. Mine's a little more worn and faded, but uh, very <laughs> good. Very have, proud of you. We do have the – maybe I'll tape some numbers on it and get make it a Flutie jersey in the back. So, uh, hey, uh, that's it for today's episode, Believe in Patriots. Pat's finished up the season at 7-9. and nine. As we move into the offseason, um, like, well, this podcast will still exist. We'll still be going on, but uh, – kind of maybe reorganize how some things are done, how often we tape, et cetera. So um, Pat's out of the playoffs. We'll be, you know, podcast will be back next week and uh, we'll kind of tell you more of our plans going forward. So Aaron Wells is our producer, uh, always presses the buttons, really helps us in post-production. If you ever see us on, on Instagram or on social media with video highlights, Aaron is the guy 
that does it. He plays all the audio. He's great. Doug Flutie is the former Pats quarterback, Heisman Trophy winner, CFL Hall of Famer. I am Brady Farkas. Until then, can't believe we're saying it. Offseason is what's coming. Go Pats. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. These days, work is in trouble. We've outsourced most of our manufacturing to other countries. And with that, we sent away good jobs and our capability to make things. American Giant is a clothing company that's pushing back against this tide. They make all kinds of high-quality clothing and activewear, like sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more, right here in the USA. So when you buy American Giant, you create jobs in towns and cities across the country. And jobs bring pride. Purpose. They stitch people together. If all that sounds good to you, visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with promo code STAPLE20.